Well, I am assuming if you have a house, your backyard is like mine. It's no longer under 12 feet of snow. And you're beginning to see maybe some ground or patio stones. I'm assuming that that's the case. And you're looking forward to the day that's just around the corner when maybe you can sit out back, enjoy some sun, maybe some homemade fresh lemonade and iced tea. It's bringing smiles to some people's faces here, I can see. Maybe even along with some chips and salsa. Maybe, maybe even fire up the barbecue and invite some guests over. Just to let you know, I can free up my calendar for any steak or burger if you want to have a guest over, okay? But one of the biggest backyard get-togethers or parties that I have ever been a part of was when I was on a teacher exchange in England back in the 90s. And over there in England, they often refer to their backyards as gardens. And I was invited to the Buckingham Palace, a Buckingham Palace garden party. (laughs) Being that I was a part of the Commonwealth League of Exchange Teachers. I wasn't the only one there. (laughs) There was just about, oh, I don't know, maybe 5,000. And as you can well imagine, being part of such a a royal gathering, a royal party, there were certain protocols. The men had to wear suits, the women dresses, they had to wear wide-brimmed hats with white gloves all the way up to their elbows. There was no chips and salsa. (laughs) But there was sandwiches with the crust cut off. And while we didn't really know who was all going to be there from the royal family, we were told at one point that we could form a line, line up, like form an aisle about 15 to 20 yards wide, and people would line up on either side. There were three such aisles, so that when the members of the royal family came in and made their grand entrance, the Queen Mother came down one aisle, Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip came down another, And Princess Diana and Charles came down the third. And what was interesting was that when people had discovered which aisle Princess Diana was coming down, (laughs) it was like the crowd went, shoo! And people made their way over to her to see how close they could get. And yes, I was one of the groupies (laughs) that went over and got within about 5, 10, 15 yards of her. But it was quite the grand party and grand spectacle as they made their way into the garden party. Today marks the day of Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus made his way into the city of Jerusalem in what has become known as his grand entrance, or triumphal entry. And it's a day that marks the beginning of the week where many have come to refer to as Holy Week, or Easter Week, or Passion Week. 
And we're told from various gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that Jesus entered the city riding on a colt. And we're going to pick up the story. You've heard part of it already here this morning. We're going to pick up up the story from Mark's account, beginning at verse 8 in chapter 11. And it says, Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And then Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. One of the things I love about the Bible is that you and I can often find ourselves in the story. There are things said about people that are a reflection of us, about things that are true of us. In fact, one of the things that I hold as a conviction about preaching is that preaching is not talking to you about the Bible. It's talking to you about yourselves from the Bible. Because here in this passage, here are people who have they have turned to Jesus. They are looking to Jesus. They are looking to him. And what are they doing? They have laid down their cloaks and they're waving their palm branches. They're even shouting, Hosanna, which means God save us or, or save us or, or save us now. But they have certain ideas. They have certain expectations of this King Jesus that is riding into the city. They are holding on to personal beliefs that they have gotten from, well, I don't know, maybe from a number of different influences. Maybe from others. Maybe from culture. Maybe from certain understandings from the Torah. Maybe from lives of the enemy. But isn't it true about you and me that in our journey of faith, in our growth and development in it, there are things that we have held on to be true and then something happens. Something rubs up against what we have held to believe or hold as true. And it rubs up against what it is that we have held to be true. There is all of a sudden now, there is friction. There is friction between the two. There is a lack of harmony between what we had maybe thought or believed because of now that something that has rubbed up against it. And therefore it gives us pause to rethink or to, to work through or to, or to wrestle through what is perhaps maybe a revealing insight or a deeper understanding of truth that is going to give us reason for a new enlightened perspective. For example, have you ever heard this? Have you ever heard that God helps those who help themselves? Have you ever heard that? 
If somebody said that to you, what would you say to them? Is that true? Does that mean that God only helps those who help themselves? No. At best, that is a half-truth. At best, that is a half-truth. I prefer the saying, God helps those who are helpless. Because that is a, a better expression of God's truth. Or have you heard this? Have you heard this one? Maybe, maybe even you believe. God will never give you more than you can handle or more than you can bear. Have you ever heard that? That's not true. That's not biblical. That's taking a verse of scripture and kind of twisting it, which is something that the enemy loves to do, the devil. He loves to twist scripture. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says this. It says, God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear and will provide a way out so that you can endure it. So it's referring to temptation. But for things other than our, that go beyond that to other things, right? Beyond what we can handle, yeah. That's one of the reasons why you and I need God. Otherwise, we could just operate out of our own strength. Or here's one more. How about this example? Perhaps somewhere within our Christian journey, in our growing up or whatever it happens to be, maybe you have this picture of Jesus. You have this image of Jesus where we simply see him as being kind and, and meek and gentle. And he, he is that. That's all true. He can be all that. But if that is your only understanding of Jesus, when you come to read something like Mark in Mark chapter 11, or in Matthew chapter 21, where all of a sudden it depicts Jesus as flipping over the tables of the money changers, or overturning the benches of those that are selling doves in the temple area. All of a sudden now then, right, you may have this kind of rubbing up against what you may have once sort of thought of him as, and it's like, who is this guy? This isn't the guy that I've pictured him as. I've had people in Bible studies who I, I, can, I, can, I can just hear it. I can hear it in him talking about that passage. And I can hear it. They're, they're struggling. They're struggling with him all of a sudden when what they see as a violent act. As if Jesus is, is somebody who's all of a sudden, he's had a temper tantrum, is in need of counseling. But they've had to deconstruct what they have held to believe about Jesus and reconstruct a more fully orbed picture that is closer to the person that he actually is. A person who, who can be filled with righteous anger. Anger towards those in the temple area who turned it into a marketplace of money makers and a den of robbers where Jesus himself makes it abundantly clear, my house, he says, will be what? 
it will be a house of prayer. So our journey of faith, it can have these moments. Our journey of faith, there will be these times throughout our Christian walk, our Christian journey. Where something rubs up against what we've held to believe or hold as truth. That is going to maybe require some refining or further development or, or nuance. So that we have a better understanding or a deeper understanding of the actual truth. So here's a crowd of people. Here's a crowd of people who are... You know, in the account of Mark's gospel, they're lining the roads upon Jesus' entry. They're waving palm branches. They've laying down their cloaks. They're yelling or shouting, you know, hosannas, which, which, by the way, they were justified. Just not in the way that they had supposed. They had this idea or this belief. They had this expectation that Jesus was this coming one, this king, who was going to deliver them from the oppression of the Romans. This is the one they thought we had been waiting for and praying for, who is going to save us from such oppression. A conquering king, one whom he would take care of Roman authority. Our moment has arrived, they thought. This is it. And so the whole procession of him into the city, into the city of Jerusalem, was celebrating their idea, they thought. That he was going to be the sort of king that they want. But they are clueless at this point, absolutely clueless. They have no idea what is going to happen in five days' time let alone two days after that. They have had no idea. As I say, they're absolutely clueless. Can you, can you imagine what must have rubbed up against their thinking of this king that they have envisioned when all of a sudden they saw a set of, you know, a, thorn, a crown of thorns being set on his head? Soldiers mocking him and spitting on him? and lashing him with a whip, then even to eventually see him nailed to a cross and suffering in what was a most torturous death through crucifixion? Can you imagine how confused they must have been? Talk about having to deconstruct one's thinking. They wanted Jesus to save them from the Romans. But little did they know that God had in mind that he would save them from their sins. They wanted to place Jesus high above, as if someone of royalty. But Jesus had him descend to the depths of death to die for the sins of the world. Sin that is literally, sin that is literally killing you and me on the inside toward a downward spiral spiral towards death. 
And God himself had to deconstruct death before there could be new life. That's why he had his son come and die. <clears throat> so the story of you know, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is really an object lesson between this, this mismatch, between the crowd's ideas and beliefs and expectations and those of God's and, and his ways and truth. It was a mismatch. The bad news was that the crowd was going to be disappointed. The good news, the good news is that their disappointment was just at a surface level. Because deep down, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is, it is the moment when salvation is approaching. And as I mentioned, the Hosannas, they were justified. They just were not for the reasons that they had supposed. So the crowd along the road and what they thought was the case is a lesson that we can all learn. That is a step towards wisdom and humility and genuine faith. I've made use of the word deconstruct or deconstruction. Partly because there's a bit of a trend out there in Christian land where maybe you have heard or maybe somebody has said to you they are deconstructing their faith. Have you heard experiences? Including those of some who have had a crisis of faith and they have walked away, even left the church. But oftentimes they are people who have not deconstructed enough. They have not gone far enough. Deconstruction without reconstruction is a tragedy. Without being brought back to or pointed towards or revisiting the person of Jesus and who he is. Brad Jerzyk, who is a ministry colleague out in B.C., he recalls having this dialogue with such a person who has kind of walked away from his faith, who said that at his lowest point, however, he found himself calling upon Jesus. And Brad Jerzak had said to him at one point, he said, he said, somehow you have missed, somehow you have, you have missed a spiritual attachment to Christ as a living person. How is it that your church tradition, how is it, how is it that your church tradition has failed to facilitate a real encounter? For you to have met him in a real encounter. See, Christianity is all about Jesus. That's who, that's who this whole week is all about. Culminating in seven days' time that he is alive. He is personal. He is knowable. It's all about Jesus. It's all about him. Millennials and Gen Z, two generations in our day and age, 
So that's, that's teens and, and 20-somethings, Gen Z, and millennials, who for, for the most part are, are somewhere in the 30s. They are two generations who are asking probing questions and have queries or wonderings about spiritual matters. And think about it. They, these, are, these are two generations who have grown up with the internet and social media. So they are people who, have, who are subject to platforms where, you know, giving them access to a dizzying array of voices and perspectives and experiences. All of which is to say, makes for the holding of certain beliefs a bit more difficult. So they are asking probing questions and are wrestling with things, perhaps even deconstructing their thinking in the process, but all in a search for truth. So they are having vibrant and complex philosophical conversations. Trust me, with or without the church. So we, within the church, we within the church, when given opportunity, can hopefully serve as, as helpful guides, being willing to take their questions, engage in conversation, trying to understand where they are at, all the while having a, a posture of, of love and grace and empathy as we walk alongside them as they work through things about spiritual matters. And hopefully, you and I, hopefully we can help point them to helpful markers along the way as we earn their trust. Greg Boyd, who is a pastor in Minnesota, Minneapolis, Minnesota, he published a book that is a series of letters between he and his father that answers or at least speaks to or points to some sort of a question. Which, by the way, makes for some fascinating reading. But how this came about was that Pastor Greg, the son, knew that his father did not hold to at least did not hold firm to any particular worldview, nor did he have a personal faith. So Pastor Greg, the son, believing that a relationship with Christ is the most important thing that a person can have, he proposed to his dad that they have a, a back and forth discussion about Christianity through letters. And his dad could ask any question about Christianity, which was likely behind or behind him not being a Christian. And Greg, Pastor Greg the son, would respond to each, each question and why he is a Christian. Twenty-nine letters, twenty-nine questions, 29 responses. 
responses to questions like, why is the world so full of suffering? Why didn't God spare your mother? Why trust the gospel accounts? How can you and I be holy and sinful at the same time? 29 correspondences, back and forth, between this Pastor Greg the son and his father. And at the end of the book, in the epilogue, Greg points to what was really kind of the turning point for his dad with Greg's response to why he thinks the Bible is inspired. And the dad started to see the light, which eventually led him to taking a leap, as dad put it, and accepted Jesus as his personal Lord and Savior. But what really struck me was at the end of the book, Greg sharing one of the final times he got to spend with his dad a few years later before his dad died. His dad began to weep for no apparent reason. And Pastor Greg, the son, said, why the, why the tears? And his dad, sitting in a wheelchair, wearing diapers, nearly totally blind at this point, said, because I feel so blessed by God just to be here. He had come to know the love and the grace of God through the receiving of truth and the one who is truth. Resurrection life for you and me comes through the reception of truth. And it strikes me that in Luke chapter 19, in Luke chapter 19, with Jesus, you know, riding on a colt, and after the people have laid down their cloaks on the road and waving their palms and shouting and praising him in their name, it says this in Luke 19. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, even you, if you, even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. The people didn't get it and time was running out. Jesus was weeping. They didn't receive his message of good news that he had been teaching them and showing them along the way, nor that he himself is the one who actually embodies truth. Remember, resurrection life for you and me comes to the reception of truth. And my prayer for all of us here this morning and those online, my prayer for all of us as we each walk in faith 
is that we are continually evaluating whether certain beliefs, ideas, or attitudes are rooted in Christ or in the culture. Pursue truth. And the one who is truth. And that may mean having to deconstruct and reconstruct in the process. But it's also that you and I have a a greater grasp and a deeper understanding of the truth and the one who is truth. Amen? Let's pray together. Fathers, I think about the world in which you know, we live with so many voices that are you know, clamoring for our attention and having possible influence. We thank, you. we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that not only speaks of ultimate truth, but points us to the one who himself is truth. Help us to to put down deeper roots into your truth, moving us beyond just the elementary teachings about Jesus into deeper revelations, deeper insights, deeper truths that are true about you and your Son. For we pray this in your Son's precious name. And everybody said, Amen.